All right, welcome everybody to the last night of our class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. And I will remind you where we are and uh, what we have remaining to, to cover in just a moment. But I wanted to remind you that because tonight is the last night of this class, then we won't gather in this room for this class. But next week there is a class. So if you have kids that are in the kids program and you're going to be coming anyway then there'll be something for you to do. Dr. Combs is going to be leading a class on how to study the Bible using some free uh, Bible study software. So he's going to show how to do that. It's just one night, but that'll be next week. And I think it'll be in that room, but it'll be in one of these rooms uh, along here. So we do have a class next week. And then after that, no adult classes. Uh, the Two weeks from tonight is the Derby the Pinewood Derby that the kids participate in, but we have tonight and then next week, and and that's it, okay? And tonight, our class ends, and we are on page three in the third tab in your notebooks. And at the top, it says application practicum. You see that? And so we covered about two-thirds of page three last week. But in these last few weeks, in this final of the three sections of our class, we've been looking at how to apply the Bible. So the three sections are survey of the Bible, understanding the Bible, and then now applying the Bible. And under the second section on understanding the Bible, we looked at principles of interpretation. And we looked at four uh, such principles. A text cannot mean what it never meant. All texts are not alike. Uh, a text has only one meaning. And then the last one was the Bible communicates a unified message. Those four principles will help you understand the meaning of a passage. But even though one of those four principles is a text has only one meaning, not multiple meanings, it has one meaning, even though that's the case, it can be applied a lot of ways. As you glean principles out of a passage, now that can have applicability in a number of ways in your life and in a different way in somebody else's life. So the meaning is one, is singular, but the applications can be many. And a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at how you can cull the a principle or principles out of a passage. And one thing that you can do, we saw in all passages, is to ask what this passage teaches us about God what this passage teaches us about people, and what does this passage teach us about God's grace? You remember that? So uh, a passage is teaching you something about God, it's teaching you something about people, and uh, it's teaching you something about God's grace. Now the reason I say it's teaching something about God's grace is because uh, uh, last week, or the week before, we saw uh, something called the fallen condition focus, that each passage has a focus on some aspect of the fallen condition. And fallenness includes your sin, personal sin, but it also includes sin against you, and it includes life in a fallen world and all of the difficulties and hardships that go with life in this world after the curse of the of the fall. So every passage, as you go through it in the Bible, you can ask yourself, what is being focused on here regarding the fallen condition and then ask yourself, how does God's grace 
address that issue of the of the fallen condition. So it's a matter of asking those kinds of questions so that you can glean an, an overarching principle that you can use in your own life. On page 3, last week, we saw principles from Genesis 1. And from Genesis 1-1 and then verses 26 to 28, we see God is the creator of heaven and earth, but then specifically on day 6, God the creator of humanity, male and female. And we asked, what does this say about God? And we saw that it teaches us that all of life is God-centered. And God has complete authority over his world. And God is apart from his creation, not part of creation. And then I just put a fourth there just to indicate that there are many more that you could glean out of this. I'm just giving you examples. What does it say about us? We are completely dependent on God. We were made to know God's voice. And we are unique. We're made in his, his image. And now there are other principles from Genesis 1 through 3. Let's take some time to look at those, and then we'll look at some principles from the book of Ruth, and then some from the book of Matthew, and then we'll be done with our class, okay? So bottom of page 3, other principles from Genesis 1 through 3, body, soul, and spirit. In Genesis chapter 2 that you see referenced there, Genesis 2-7, the Bible says that God made man out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed into man the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So that teaches us that we are both material and immaterial. As God's unique creation, we are both material and immaterial beings who are to reflect his image in all our relationships, material and immaterial beings, that we are physical and spiritual. We are both of those. So in that one verse, you see that that truth. Now, how does that how does that apply then? Um, we are not materialists. Now, when I say that word materialists, you most often think of somebody who's materialistic. And when we think of someone who's materialistic, we think of someone who's greedy. You know, someone who is just into uh, unrighteous mammon, as the King James says, uh, just into money. But actually a materialist is somebody who just believes in matter. And it's fitting to call someone who is greedy and someone who only lives for money a materialist because they're only living for the here and now. So there's somebody who doesn't, who doesn't see uh, another dimension. It's only, it's only here and now. Only what you can see and touch and buy with, with filthy lucre. Another King Jamesism for you. So, uh, but, but here when we say we are not, we are material and immaterial, we are not materialists, we're saying that we are not people who only believe in matter, in, only in physical existence. We certainly agree, believe in that, but not only that. Now, think about then how that applies. Well, when, uh, when somebody has a problem, um, is there, is, there, is there always a spiritual dimension to the problems we have? I mean, think about that. If we're both matter and immatter, mat, you know, physical and spiritual, then is there, is there always a spiritual dimension to the problems we have? Now, my answer to that would be yes. Now, now notice, I say there's a spiritual dimension. I didn't say a spiritual cause to all the problems we have. 
you know, if I if I go out tonight, you go out tonight, and get hit by a car in the parking lot, uh, don't tell anyone because we don't want to get sued. Okay. Yeah. No, what it means is that you were in the parking lot when uh, Carolyn Poole was pulling out. And, uh, <laughs> poor Carol. That's what you get for sitting in front, Carol. But if you know, if you get if an accident occurs through no fault of your own, then there's not some sin you committed to cause that. But is there a spiritual dimension to this whole thing? Because now, immediately, you're going to start asking questions. All kinds of spiritual transactions are going to be going on in you, aren't they? Who's the idiot who hit me? Sorry, Carolyn. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're mad, okay? Now, can't people... And and so you're angry. How am I going to respond to this? Why did God let this happen to me? So even though it's it's a strictly physical thing that happened, you got injured through no fault of your own, you still have a spiritual dimension to everything that happens to you because at all times, as spiritual beings, we are transacting with God. We are thinking about ourselves in relation to God's world and why things happen and why other things don't happen, and that's creating attitudes and responses within us. So everything that happens has a spiritual dimension to it, even if, if the event is strictly a physical event, because we are both, we are material and immaterial. We are physical and we are spiritual. And so we should not be quick to diagnose our problems as only physical. And this gets into psychiatry, okay? Because much of psychiatry today is strictly materialistic. That the things that happen to you are matters of chemical secretions in your brain. And what you need then is medication for this physical problem. Now, given that we're in a fallen world and given that fallenness affects every aspect of our existence including our physical bodies, then it's not only entirely possible, it's, it's reality that our bodies don't work right, including our brains. Our physical brains don't work properly. So we can, be, we can have our wires crossed. We can have, you know, chemi- we, can have, we can have neurons firing in ways that they shouldn't, that we have to battle with. So that's part of living in a fallen world. So that's the recognition that we are material. But again, we're not only material. We're also spiritual. And there's a spiritual dimension to everything we go through. The person who's having those issues is still a spiritual being. And that person is still having to interact with others, with God, with themselves, on a spiritual basis about their problems and why they're having the problems they are and why they and, and, and adopting the outlook on themselves and others and God that they do. So as you look at what people say about our bodies and how they function and what the and what the diagnosis and cure for those is, just understand that because we are made this way, both material and immaterial, then there's always a spiritual dimension even to the physical problems we have. All right. Bottom of page three. 
In Genesis 1, we see that we were created for community. Since we are created in God's image, who is three persons in relationship with one one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can only experience fulfillment as image bearers as we live our lives building up one another in love. This is why in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, God says to the first man, it is not good that man be what? To be alone. And he gives the man a woman, and he establishes the institution of marriage. Now, I think one of the mistakes that we've, we've made is because you've got the first man and the first woman, and they came together in holy matrimony, we've assumed that the only cure for then loneliness is marriage. Um, it happens, importantly, that God established marriage at the time that he cured Adam's loneliness, but, but marriage is not the only cure for loneliness. For people who, for people who are not married, they're still, it's still not good for them to be alone. They are still to be social beings in relationship with others. And that's one of the reasons that the church is God's family, God's household. So even single persons then are part of the household of God, and they are to be in community with one another, interacting with one another. And we make, I believe, an important and hurtful, unintentionally but hurtful mistake when we, we fail to point out that marriage is not the only cure to to loneliness. But everybody should be cured of loneliness. Because loneliness is not God's intention. It is not good that humans be alone. So God made us as social beings. Now why? God was the first social being. Because he was in relationship and community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from etern- all eternity. And if we're going to reflect God's image, part of that is reflecting God's image in relationship with one another. And mutual submission to one another, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. Uh, son to the Father, the Spirit to the Son and the, and the Father. Different roles that are played. All of that has to be done, not in isolation, it can't be done. But it's done in relationship with, with one another. All right, page four. One flesh. God created men and women who marry to represent and experience in the most intimate way the unity that exists in the eternal community, Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. And when you get to Matthew 19, which you see listed there, Jesus quotes Genesis 2 in the New Testament. And he says, therefore, Jesus adds something, because this is not in Genesis 2. But he quotes Genesis 2, that uh, God created man and woman, and these two will be one flesh. And then he adds, and therefore what God has joined together, let no one tear apart, let no one put asunder. I'm just in King James mode uh, tonight. So what God has joined together, you don't you don't tear apart. Um so, you know, how does how does that apply to marriage? How does that apply to how does that apply to divorce? You know, God has made marriage to be a picture um, of the unity that exists between in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, we have it listed for you there, uh, marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. So in both cases, a picture of God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and Christ and the church, in both cases, these are sacred pictures that cannot be torn apart, cannot be severed. I mean, just can can the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be separated? Can Christ be separated from his church? And the answer to both of those is no. Well, then, this is why Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. So, you know, some of you may have experienced the tragedy of of divorce, and so I, I say what I'm saying here. With that in mind, I don't uh, want to heap unnecessary guilt on anyone. I don't know your circumstance as to why that might have happened. Uh, In a fallen world, it does happen. Uh, But when it does happen, it happens because of fallenness. It always happens because of fallenness. On the part of at least one person. Uh, And according to Scripture, there are two, two reasons, valid reasons, why someone could get a divorce and have this tragedy of the unity of marriage uh, severed. And that is adultery because it breaks the one flesh unity of marriage and then abandon, deserting, departing the marriage. Those two things. But divorce is to be avoided at all costs as much as it depends on you. Because it's a picture of something much more important than your individual marriage. It's a picture of the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and Christ and His Christ and His Church. So marriage needs to be seen as sacred. That needs to be recovered in the church. Don't get me started. Okay? Alright, Satan's tactics. We learn about that in Genesis three. Remember in Genesis three, uh, the Bible tells us the The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild beasts uh, that the Lord God had made. And he said, verse 2, he said to the woman. And those words, and he said to the woman, are the first time anybody has said anything to the man or the woman except God. They've only heard one voice. They've heard each other and they've heard God. That's it. And now they get a foreign voice. And he, the serpent, said to the woman. And then you have the woman saying to the serpent. Satan's goal has always been to deceive us and to cause us to reject God. But in Christ we can be victorious. But that's Satan's goal, to deceive and to cause us to reject God. And that's what he was successful in doing with the first man and woman. And he deceives lots of ways. And how did he deceive there? You know, he, he, he put a question on the goodness of God. Is God really good? Does God really have your best interests at heart? And so now the woman who had only known good things and the man who had only known good things are now questioning whether or not this good God who made them really and ultimately has their good at at heart. Is he holding something back? And so, believing that he might be holding something back, they go for what it is that might tell them 
what's being held back. Because remember, Satan said, because God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? And so they, they eat it. When I was preaching on this back several months ago, as we go through Genesis, I said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the partaking of the fruit that gave that knowledge of good and evil meant that now Adam and Eve would determine good and evil for themselves. That's what the knowledge of good and evil means. They are now going to independently determine what's good and what's evil. And they're going to find out how well that works. Prior to this, only God determined what was good and what was evil. And there was one thing that was evil, one. Failing to do what I tell you to do. But now they're going to determine that independent of God. And that's why they become like gods. And that was appealing to them. We'll determine that rather than rather than God. So this God, maybe he can't be trusted. Therefore, we should make the decisions ourselves. And so they succumb to the temptation. They were deceived and then rejected. Now, when, you dece- when you're deceived, sometimes when we... You know, say, see deceived there. You know, if I if I go uh, if I go out and get um, my pocket picked on the streets while I'm talking to somebody, so somebody comes up, they're just really friendly, we're having a conversation, and then after they leave, 15 minutes later, I realize my wallet's gone. I've been deceived, right, by this person. So really, through no fault of my own. Okay, so that's why the word deceived here can be deceptive. <laughs> because when we read that, we can read it like, well, you know, they just, Satan just pulled the wool over their eyes. This is willful deception. Because in allowing this deception to occur, they deliberately dismissed some truth that God had given to them. Remember, the deception led to rejection, and the deception was God is not really good. So behind that is entertaining the idea God is not necessarily good. And as a result of entertaining that, they're deceived. So they didn't have their pockets picked. That's the way we that's the way we think of Adam and Eve sometimes. You know, that they just got outsmarted by Satan. But they were willful participants. And The serpent has this dialogue with a woman, foreign voice, for the first time, and now that voice continues to speak, but speaks in a myriad of ways and comes at you with all sorts of claims and all sorts of pronouncements that you have to filter through the grid of of truth. And we call that, this whole thing that happened, Adam's sin. And yet, it's the woman who did all the talk. So what's up with that? Men. Why is it Adam's sin? And you go to the New Testament, and sure enough, it's Adam's sin. Adam's the guy who is responsible for this. Well, he was supposed to be watching out for So where is he? Right with her. And what's he saying? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> so men, speak up. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> Speak up. No, I'm, I mean, I'm laughing, but there's a serious point to this. 
men, if you're going to lead, you got to speak up. You have to take initiative. You cannot be passive and lead. And and Adam was passive. And in his passivity, he sinned by not taking the leadership that God had assigned to him in chapter 2. God had assigned leadership to him by having him name everything, including naming the woman. And that was an instance of his, his leadership. Further, the woman was made to help him. To help him do what God had assigned to him, to rule. So he's given this task. He's given a, a partner to, to help him with that. He's to lead that partner. And he is passive. And in that passivity, he sinned. And that's why it's assigned to him in, in, in the New Testament. It's Adam's sin. When you come to 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, where Paul there in 1 Timothy 2 is talking about the role of women in the church. And he's saying that the church is to be led by men. And he gives a reason. He says, for Eve was deceived. Do you remember that? It was Eve that was deceived. Even though Adam was formed first. That's what he says. Adam was formed first, but it was Eve that was deceived. Now, what's the relationship between Adam being formed first and Eve being the one who was deceived? I'm asking. Anybody know? All right, I just said Adam was made first and given this assignment, and he was given a helper for him. So, Paul then says he was formed first. He was given this leadership. That's what he's saying. He was formed first. But it was Eve who was deceived. And what he's saying is the very first sin in the garden was an upsetting of God's order. That even though it was supposed to be Adam taking initiative and leading, it was Eve who ended up leading. It's not because women are, women are more susceptible to sin. We men would like to say that. That's not what 1 Timothy 2 is saying. It's saying that in that first sin, that first drama taking place in in Genesis chapter 3, the woman wasn't supposed to be leading in the first place. Adam was formed first, then Eve, but it was the woman who was deceived. And it's Paul's way of saying, where was Adam in all of this? Adam was supposed to be leading. Verse 6 of Genesis 3 says that the woman took of the fruit and then she gave some to her husband who was with her. That's what it says, who was with her. So here's Adam with her and yet Adam says nothing. So I, I, I was laugh, we're laughing about men speak up, but leadership requires initiative and some of us, and sometimes in our fallenness, as a result of our fallenness, we're happy to just take a back seat. And men, if you're passive in your leadership, then you're not fulfilling the role that God gave to you. Ladies, if you don't allow your husband to take initiative and lead, then you're not allowing him to fulfill the role that God gave to him. And you're not fulfilling the role God gave to you to help him and to willingly place yourself under that. The word submit. All right. Rationalization. 
One of the results of sin entering the world was the tendency to rationalize our disobedience and to put the blame on someone else. Rationalize our disobedience and put the blame on someone else. And we know that the sin is committed and God says, you know, Adam, what have you done? And he says, the woman. The first thing out of his mouth is the woman. And then when God turns to the woman, what have you done? And she says, the serpent. Right? And when Adam says the woman, he doesn't just say the woman. I mean, that would have been, that's blame shifting. But he adds, the woman you gave me. So the first two words are the woman. The first three words are the woman you. <laughs> the woman you gave me. So not only is it not my fault, it's your fault ultimately. And and the emissary you used her to get it done. It's both of your fault. And ultimately it's your fault, God. You know, so there's only one woman at this point in the entire universe. And she's defective. That's what he's saying. You've only made one and you messed it up. That's in effect what God is saying, Adam is saying to God. And it's a, it's a very heinous accusation then when you think of it. You've made one moment, and he's in effect pointing his finger at God. The woman you gave me. And then the woman says, the serpent. And implied in that is, who made the serpent? God made the serpent too, didn't he? So you've got these fingers being pointed at God, but certainly away from ourselves. And that's the blame shifting piece. And ever since, there is that tendency. So for you, for me, in applying this, I need to be straight in what I say about my own culpability. And you need to be straight in what you say about your own culpability in sin. Because your tendency is going to be to rationalize and to blame shift. It's because of fill in the blank. If I didn't have fill in the blank, if you would only fill in the blank, instead of owning it and saying, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. It's on me. Now, it is often the case that the things that we do and sin in have a catalyst that is outside of us. That is, they're prompted and motivated by someone or something outside of us. That's often the case. Somebody ticks you off. Somebody didn't fulfill a promise. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They were irresponsible. It's often the case that if I get mad, if I say something unkind, that there's a reason. But there's not an excuse. There's a context to it. But in that context, I have still responded in a way that is sinful. And so I need to own my sinful response. And then if you need to deal with something else, somebody's irresponsibility or something like that, you deal with that separately, but own your own sin forthrightly and directly. Rationalization. And then the battle of the sexes. Because of sin, the relationship between Adam and Eve and all married couples thereafter have been impacted in a negative way. 
been impacted in a negative way. So you've got the first example of the first couple having the roles reversed on leading and taking initiative. And we still have that going on. Many men tend to be passive, as I said. So that's one. But then you you also have not only men who are willing to be passive, but you have women who are willing to usurp the role that God assigned to men. And you see listed there uh, Genesis 3.16b. Well, that B is the last line, last phrase of verse 16. And there, as God is giving consequences, punishment for a woman's role in the first sin, he says, your desire will be for your husband, uh, but he will rule over you. That's what it says for the woman. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And when you look at that phrase and you think of a woman, a wife's desire being for a husband, how could that be a negative thing? And what does ruling have to do with that? Because God says your desire will be, but in contrast to your desire being for your husband, he's going to rule over you. So that phrase can't mean intimate desire, sexual desire for your husband. If it was that, that's a good thing. And it also doesn't explain what ruling over you has to do with it, but somehow those are related. So what's the relationship? Well, when you go to the next chapter, Genesis 4, Genesis 4 and verse 7, Genesis 4, 7, there is the murder of Abel at the hands of Cain. And God approaches Cain and he says, Cain, what have you done? And then God says to Cain, I'm quoting verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. It, sin, desires to have you, but you must master it. That's what God says to, to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And in Hebrew, that's exactly the same phrase as Genesis 3.16. So, you could, you could put Genesis 3.16 this way. The woman will desire to have the man. But the husband will rule over her. There's going to be this battle that goes on. In sin, the wife is going to seek to usurp the role of the husband. And then you couple that with the passivity of men. And you've got quite a combination there, don't you? and quite a reversal of what God originally created in both instances. And so all of that goes back to just the opening chapters of the Bible. All right, Book of Ruth, page 5. We're going to go through a couple pages worth of these principles from the Book of Ruth. And I will explain... And in fact, I'll read some of the passages from Ruth as we go. But most of you know the story of Ruth, I think, four chapters in the book of Ruth. But it's a story uh, that is centered on uh, a woman, a young woman named Ruth. And she is uh, from a town called Moab. 
and Moab Moab is a pagan uh, nation and Moab was not only a pagan nation it was a, a nation that was off limits for Israelites God had set it off limits because the Moabites had treated Israel uh, in an inhospitable way when they were in their wilderness journey. And um, further, Moab has a very inauspicious beginning. That um, the, the first the person named Moab, who was the founder of the nation, was a product of an incestuous relationship. recorded in the book of Genesis. And the son's name was Moab, and then he was the founder of this nation of the Moabites. So by the time you get to the book of Ruth, the history of Moab is well known. So how does Ruth get involved in the story of the Bible, given that she's from pagan Moab? Well, the way it happens is there's a famine in Israel. And as a result of that, a man named Elimelech takes his family, his wife and his two sons to Moab for better times. So he goes to Moab and they uh, find, and this is what the Bible says in verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, that's how the book of Ruth starts, in the days when the judges ruled. Well, you, you should learn something about that right away. Okay, in the days when the judges ruled. And look at the very first one here, top of page five, worldly influences. We live in a worldly culture, so we must take every precaution not to be influenced by the values that contradict God's will for our lives. Not to be influenced by values that contradict God's will for our lives. Now, how do you get that out of Ruth and its first couple of verses? Because that's what's listed there, Ruth 1, 1 and 2. Well, first of all, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So what were the days like when the judges ruled? The very the verse right before the one I just read, Ruth one one. The verse just before that, you say, how can there be a verse before one one? Well, it's actually the last verse of the book before Ruth, which is the book of Judges. And the last verse in the book of Judges says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And then the next line, the book of Ruth says, in the days when the judges ruled. So here's what you're supposed to get out of that. In the days when the judges ruled were lousy days. These were immoral days. These were days when everyone did as they saw fit. So that's the context in the very first phrase. The context of the book of Ruth is these are immoral times in the days when the judges were. There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, in Israel, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. All right, so if you've read your Bible prior to that, you're going, Moab, this is not going to end well. I remember reading about a guy named Moab. 
And I remember reading about a people named Moab. And I remember God saying, don't mess with the Moabites. And don't mingle with the Moabites. But here we're mingling with the Moabites. So we've got to be very careful about intermingling with the world such that the world's values influence us. And yet that is what, and and that's why God gives us prohibition. That's why it's set in this negative context. And notice the reason that Elimelech does this. It's because there's a famine. So desperate times require what? Desperate measures. That's what's said, right? It's desperate times. So I can't obey God. We don't have any food. So we're going to have to go to Moab to get it. And that turns out to be that turns out to be a mistake. You know, another application of this is do you ever have to disobey God? Okay, Elimelech could rationalize that, couldn't he? Hey, I know I'm not supposed to go to Moab, but a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Right? All right, godly fathering. As fathers particularly, in this case Elimelech, we must always seek to avoid making decisions that can make our whole family vulnerable and lead to devastating consequences. I mean, when you... So now, Elimelech, you're going to go and obey, disobey God. You are putting your family at great risk. Um, you're going outside the nation to a nation that God has prohibited. And the story goes on. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Okay. Now we're in Moab. Now what? He has a heart attack. I just made that up. But he dies. But he's got his family in Moab. All right. You know, it, and, and just you can think about Elimelech. Just thinking about it. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. And it, we'll just, we won't stay long. But he dies. And Naomi is left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. All right. So now we went because of a famine, but now, we, now we're marrying. Because that's what worldliness does. It, it influences us if we're not careful. So these guys are influenced by that. They marry the Moabite women. One named Orpah. I couldn't marry a woman named Orpah. Nonetheless. <laughs> a Moabite named Orpah, of all things. And the other Ruth. Okay. After they had lived there about 10 years. So the writer of Ruth adds that. After they had been there 10 years, this wasn't just to grab some food and leave. We've settled in. We've married Moabite women. And both Malon and Kilion, the sons, also died. So now not only is Naomi left without Elimelech, but Orpah and Ruth are left without the two sons. Three women on their own in Moab. And they were left without her two sons, Naomi was, and her her husband. So, has Elimelech put his family in a vulnerable position? Indeed. So, guys, fathers in particular, we make decisions that affect our families. And we put them in vulnerable positions, including if we move them. That's just one. Sometimes you got to move. 
but you think about the impact of the decisions you make on the people that you're called to lead and you're called to help. Facing problems realistically. Regardless of the difficult circumstances we face, we must always face these challenges realistically with humility, wisdom, and determination to do the right thing. Humility, wisdom, and determination. Now, what is that about? Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, what's the humility and the wisdom and all of that that you see there? Uh, when they get back, what are the, well, they don't have anything. What are the neighbors going to say? Hey, how'd that Moabite trip work out? You're coming back husbandless. You're coming back. Okay, it's going to take some humility to go back and and face the fact that this was a disastrous move that had been made. Even though it was the Elimelech who initiated it, you have to go back and face the music, as it were. That's what that's that's about. But in the midst of having done the wrong thing, now do the right thing. And then verses 12 and 13, Naomi says to these daughters-in-law, Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So she's lost, she's lost hope here. She's just, it's, it's bitter for me, she says, and it's hopeless. And so you guys go your way and leave me to die in my old age, as it were. So she's lost hope, but the truth is we can, we can and should maintain hope. When as Christians we face devastating tragedies, we must not allow our circumstances to destroy our hope for the future. And Naomi had, is, is doing that. Now, she's going to be aided by Ruth in this, but if left to herself and her own counsel, she's going to, she's going to discard all, all hope. And for the Christian, there is always hope. Is that true? For the Christian, there is always something to look forward to. Uh, and, and that's been a phrase that I've given to people in counsel. It's been a phrase, Annie wouldn't mind me saying this when she was little. I used to say this to her because Annie would be crying at night and just thinking about how horrible her life is. And, and I would tell her that there's always something to look forward to for the Christian. Always. And, you know, even if that's ultimately... Ultimately, that is heaven. But for the Christian, then, there is always something to look forward to. And so, therefore, we can always have a confident expectation of a better future. That's what hope is in the Bible. All right, and then there's subtle idolatry. Because here's what verse 15 says in chapter 1. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Orpah decided, okay, you're right, Naomi. I'm heading. I'm. I'm going back to Moab. And Ruth says, "No, I'm going to stay with you." And Naomi says, "No, your sister-in-law is going. Go and uh, back to her people and her gods. Go back with her." Now here's Naomi from 
Israel, the nation of the true and living God. And she's instructing her daughter-in-law to go back to these idolatrous gods. So Naomi has been, in the time that they're in Moab, she has been influenced to some extent by the pervasive culture there. So when we face difficult circumstances in our lives, we can, should consider this an opportunity to evaluate more realistically the extent that we are free from worshiping false gods. And you've heard me beat on idols of the heart and the idolatries that we all easily adopt. All right, and then another principle is strength and weakness. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. You're telling me to go back to these gods of Moab. Your God's going to be my God, says Ruth. So even when we are spiritually and psychologically weak, we must still trust God to use us to impact others. You know, so here is, is Naomi. She's spiritually weak, obviously. She's psychologically weak. She's given up hope. But God can still use us to influence others. Now, in this case, he's influenced Ruth almost in spite of Naomi. Not completely. She's had some positive influence on her, clearly. But always bear in mind that even when we are down spiritually and psychologically weak, God can and desires to still use us to influence others. All right, and then in chapter 2, here's what the Bible says. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, on Elimelech's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Notice the phrase in verse 1, a man of standing. He was a man of he was a man known for his integrity in in Bethlehem. And that's what this next uh, principle is about, demonstrating God's character. As Christians, we should reflect God's character in our lives not only because of his grace in saving us, but in order to encourage others to walk in God's will also. And Boaz was a man that had apparently influenced others, known as a man of standing and integrity. So there is this guy now back in Bethlehem who's a relative of Elimelech. His name is Boaz. Naomi remembers that, and she says that uh, we have this person that we know back in, in Bethlehem. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And I think we talked about this a few months ago, what that means when we looked briefly at the book of Ruth. But that was something provided for in the law where those who were destitute of food could work for their own food. And the way they worked for their food was they could walk behind uh, the um, harvesters and anything that they missed as they were going, then these gleaners could pick up. And the uh, harvesters were instructed to round the corners on their field. So that that section was left for gleaners, people who needed food. 
So this was Israel's wealth, welfare system. It was. I mean, it's work for food. And so you don't just get the food given to you. You work for it. You actually go and you follow behind and you pick up. And you do that with what's left behind, but also what's left on these rounded, rounded corners. And that's what Ruth is saying, let me go and do. And let me glean. And that's where the name of the gleaner's food outfit uh, comes from. But then in the middle of verse 3, it says this. You know, Ruth says, it says, Ruth went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And then it says this. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, Naomi has already said, you know, I know we got a relative there. On my husband's side, my dead husband's side, named Boaz. And Ruth says, we need food, let me go get some food. And lo and behold, as it turns out, that's what it says. Of all the fields she goes to glean in, she's gleaning in Boaz's field. Now, the as it turns out piece is one of the great understatements in all of the Bible. As it turns out, as if just by happenstance. And what this is saying to you, friends, by way of application to me is, this doesn't just happen. As you go on to read the story, it's clear that God has orchestrated this whole thing. And that's what's at the bottom of page 5. When we're going about our daily routines, it shouldn't surprise us that events happen in our lives that are uniquely designed by God to achieve his purposes. Uniquely designed by God to achieve his purposes. And then you've got principles on 6 and 7, pages 6 and 7. i got to move quickly. A godly businessman. Chapter 2 and verse 4. As she's gleaning, verse 4 says, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. So here's a guy who has all these people working for him. And he says, the Lord be with you to his workers, his employees. You want to work for a guy like that? And then all the employees say, the Lord bless you to their boss. Have you ever worked anywhere where people praised the boss and said, the Lord bless you? And so, top of page six, as our culture becomes more and more permeated with secular values that contradict pure biblical values, we must determine to become more and more like Christ in the way we treat others in our families, our churches, and in the world of business. So all of those values permeate how we look at family, how we look at church, how we look at business. But there's a distinctly Christian way to look at that. Family care. In chapter 3, One day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. So here's now Naomi, who's been influenced now by Ruth and the faithfulness and dedication of Ruth. She's come to her senses. Now, remember, she was teetering with the hopelessness and all of that. And now she's looking out for for Ruth. As members of a human family structure, we must do all we can to encourage those who have special needs, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So she's concerned about Ruth's needs. And then mutual trust between the two of them. She gives instructions, Naomi does, to Ruth. And then Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. 
Now, let me stop there. She's talking to her mother-in-law? All right, I'm just saying. Okay. (laughs) I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. The only comparable passage like this in the rest of the Bible is in Exodus chapter 18, where Moses is deciding cases among the two million people that have come out of Israel. And he is just wearing himself out all day and all night. And he needs help. And his father-in-law Jethro says, this is not good what you're doing. Pick men among each of the tribes who can help you with this. And then it says in that chapter, quote, and Moses listened to his (laughs) father-in-law. So in the Bible, you've got a guy listening to his father-in-law. And you've got a daughter-in-law doing what her mother-in-law told her to do. As parents and older family members, we should be available to give advice and counsel to our younger generation without imposing our personal opinions and subjective judgments. And then verse 11 says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid, says Boaz to Ruth. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So now there's a romance here that could easily result in talk, but all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. And they already know that Boaz is. Remember, he's a man of integrity and standing. In order to lay the groundwork for a successful marriage, we must be committed to moral purity prior to marriage. Moral purity prior to marriage. Man, I could go for a long time about that. But we live in a day where marriages are being ruined before the wedding ever takes place. Marriages are being ruined before the wedding ever takes place because the seeds of the destruction of that marriage have already been planted in the moral impurity that has gone on before. And it is very difficult after the wedding for that to be for that to be gone. A lot of people deceive themselves. I can live an immoral life and then I'll be a moral man or woman after I after I'm married. So I'll imbibe in pornography and so on, and it, it invades the marriage as well. Alright, then verses twelve and thirteen of that chapter say Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer, says Boaz, of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. If he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. In order to develop noble character, we must always demonstrate respect and concern for one another. So here is Boaz demonstrating respect for this other relative who actually has dibs according to the law one and he's also concerned about uh, the welfare of Ruth as demonstrated in what he says here then they get married in chapter 4 and a public commitment is made they um, they exchange sandals that was a a way of uh, making the public uh, commitment when we're planning a marriage ceremony, we should, if at all possible, have a public event that's a godly witness to others, demonstrating that as a couple we are committed to one another as long as God gives us life. And then there is our family redeemer. As Christians, we should use this beautiful love story to remind ourselves of our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because 
in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13, you see it listed there, uh, we see that Ruth is the uh, great-grandmother of King David, and she ends up in the line, the lineage of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's actually why the story's in the Bible, to bring Bethlehem and the town of Bethlehem into the picture. Because that's where God has already determined the Savior is going to be born. And this is why, because David is going to come out of there. All right, let me go as quickly as I can. If you guys got to leave, you won't hurt my feelings. But page 7, principles from the book of Matthew. Notice the verses that are listed there. Matthew 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 1, 3, 5, 6, 10, and 17. The reason those verses are there is because there's the genealogy in Matthew. Starts the New Testament. And these are the generations of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus Christ came to be born. And then it gives the, the genealogy going, uh, going back for 14 generations, all the way back to uh, Abraham. And it says uh, in that first chapter, you've got in some of those verses some very unlikely people mentioned. Tamar. Tamar is the one who had this incestuous relationship that produced Moab and Ammon, the Ammonites and the Moabites. But Tamar is in the line of Jesus. And you not only have Tamar, but you have Bathsheba is in the line of of Jesus. And not only Tamar and Bathsheba, you've got Rahab. Remember Rahab the harlot? She's in there. So those verses are picked because you've got these unlikely people there. And here's the principle. No matter what our sinful condition, we should accept total forgiveness by believing in the birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then when you come to chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you see Matthew 1, 18 and 19 listed there? You shook your head, yeah. Emily, no, you don't. You don't see that. You don't even have the papers, all right? (laughs) Come on, I'm down to my last two minutes in this class. Let me... (laughs) So as the, that those verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1 are where uh, where Mary is uh, pregnant and an angel comes to and, and uh, an angel has to come to Joseph and explain what's happening remember because he doesn't know what's happening and until an angel comes and explains what does he think is happened that she's cheated on him they're betrothed to be married. And in order to break a betrothal, an engagement, in that day, you had to actually have like a bill of divorce. That's how serious an engagement was. And here, apparently, Mary has cheated during the betrothal. Until he hears from the, until he hears from the angel. Now, do you remember, before he heard from the angel, what the Bible says he was going to do with Mary? He was not going to expose her to public disgrace. So, from that, demonstrating grace, as believers, we are always to extend mercy and grace toward those who are living out of the will of God. Now, Mary was not living out of the will of God, it turns out, but he thought she was. And yet he was still going to extend mercy and grace to her. Matthew chapter 2, the uh, wise men come. When we present our treasures to God, we should always use these material gifts to worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, you've got John the Baptist begins preaching. And he preaches a message of repentance in order to have then forgiveness of sins and to live in fellowship with God. We must experience true repentance. Just two more. Stay with me. 
handling temptation from Matthew 4. That's where Jesus has fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. Satan comes to tempt him. You remember that? And he tempts him in three ways. Um, And so Jesus gives us an example of how to handle temptation. When we're tempted to violate God's will, we should follow Jesus' example. And what Jesus did was use Scripture to thwart Satan's efforts. With everything that Satan said to him, Jesus' replied was with, it is written. Here's what the Bible says. And then last, from Matthew 4, also dedicated discipleship. Verses 18 through 21 are where Jesus calls his first followers, the disciples. In order to live in the will of God, we must faithfully follow and experience the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, and those guys are just ways. I just went through a bunch of those to just show you ways that you can go through and pull out principles that you can apply to yourself as you study the Bible. Okay? Next week, Dr. Combs will be teaching the class. If you're not interested in that, no need for you to show up. Thanks.